Um, but as of now, hopefully you're all on Acts chapter 14, okay? Verses 8 through 19, which reveals some interesting characteristics of God and of people. And the title of this message is God is not without witness. And that's from something that Paul says in today's text. And the theme centers uh, on, on first how this, this statement is true and then on the variety of human response to that truth. And it's been said, whenever we read scripture, we ought to come away with a better understanding of God and a better understanding of ourselves. And that's what we're aiming for today. So if y'all are ready, um, we'll ask God to prepare us and then we'll jump in. Lord, please make us good soil. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. Um, Lystra was, it was almost dead south of Iconium. You guys might remember last week they were in Iconium. Uh, they'd stayed there for a while. If you recall, they left because they'd heard that leaders of both Jews and Gentiles were trying to kill them. So anyway, they came across this man. He's lame in both feet. It says he was crippled from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. I think it's interesting that little short sentence is written like that. He listened to Paul speaking. What was Paul saying, do you think? Uh, yeah! Say it louder. The gospel. He was preaching the gospel, don't you think? I mean, that, that's what Paul and Barnabas were doing pretty much everywhere they went. So, so this man, who'd probably spent most of his adult life lying on a mat near the synagogue, collecting charity or alms from strangers... He'd certainly had a lot of opportunity to soak up God's word over the years. I mean, he was able to hear it from where he was. But today was something different. The story's focus wasn't on the salvation and the Messiah that was to come, but the salvation and Messiah had already come, was already there, had already been. And that he's, he's accessible to anyone who had faith. And this was a new story for him. So he's listening, it says, in Paul, looking intently at him. Remember the last time Paul looked intently at somebody? It was Elemas, the sorcerer. <laughs> Whenever that happens, I think God's given him the attention span, saying, focus there. So he looked intently at him, and seeing that he had the faith to be made well, I want to pause there just for a second. That word, the Greek word, sozo, that's translated to be made well, literally, this, the Greek literally translates, he had the faith to be saved. Make of that what you will. Anyway, um, Paul said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Okay, so right off the line here, I think we can all agree that God is evidenced by miracles. God is evidenced by miracles. What are miracles? They're supernatural occurrences, right? Things that step outside of the norm, not just due to you know, what we think of as coincidence or whatever, but something where God actually intervenes in nature, okay? And when God does miraculous things, it draws attention, right? I mean, there's some great examples in Scripture where he, God does something amazing, and suddenly everybody that's there, they, they see it, they immediately glorify God because, you know, they, they know that it's got to be His hand at work. There's no other possible option. In fact, pretty much any of those cases, there's no explanation that would make sense other than that God had performed a miracle. Now, the problem is that there are some people who will prefer an explanation that doesn't make sense rather than admit what they've seen. I mean, these are the types of people that, that, that say, it's by the prince of demons that he casts out demons, you know? 
but most people can recognize what they're seeing when a man who has never walked in his life literally jumps up to his feet. I mean, can you imagine that? It wasn't like, it wasn't just that, you know, his, his legs suddenly began to tingle. And it's like, oh, I can wiggle my toes, you know, or, or like the spindly-legged baby giraffe kind of thing. None of that, none of that. He, he, he leaped up. I mean, this is physically impossible. But God does the impossible. That's why it's a miracle, right? And it seems the primary purpose of these miracles is not merely to restore creation. Not simply to bring glory to God, but to produce faith. In fact, John 14, Jesus himself told his disciples, The Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. So so miracles, supernatural interference or interjections into nature, those are evidences of God. But there's something cool about the specific incidents. You know, Luke hasn't said anything about Paul and Barnabas performing miracles in Lystra yet. This man was simply listening to the gospel. Okay? I want you to just think about this. If they hadn't performed any miracles, this man was listening to the gospel. It doesn't even say he was wanting to get healed. He had the faith to be saved. He's listening. Paul could see the Lord had predisposed him to faith, and he brought that man's faith to a stunning conclusion. And church, I think this this is a reminder that people are capable of surprising faith. You know, just just as it might seem strange that that many Pharisees, you know, they they had access to the law, they had access to all the trappings of religious life, but they still, most of them refused to believe on Jesus. It's it's also pretty amazing that people who seem to have been... um, I don't know if this is a, a, a proper phrase, but they'd been dealt a bad hand in life, so to speak. You know, it seemed like they had had a really hard time with life. They could have such shocking faith. It's a reminder that faith, like every other good gift, comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. And bearing in mind, the Father didn't reveal everything to the Son while He was on earth. Did you know there are only a few places where the Bible says that Jesus was amazed? I bet you, some of y'all know this. The amazement was always caused by one of two things. It was either by a person's lack of faith, and that's from typically people who should have known better, or it's caused by a person's faith, who typically didn't belong to what we normally think of as God's people. That's when Jesus was amazed. And I've seen folks who've grown up in a household with two godly parents that were raised in church who never lacked anything and have still completely walked away from the faith. And I've known other people, and I'm sure you have too, that grew up with abuse and poverty and terrible loss who follow Christ with all they have and with all they are. It's amazing how that works. What's more, we see in this text that God is at work through our faith. It was the power of God that gave this lame man the ability to, to leap up and walk. It wasn't just some nebulous quality of his faith. You know, like Jesus, or Paul didn't just look at him and go, that guy looks like he believes in Santa, you know, or whatever. I mean, it wasn't like that. He, he knew that there was a special kind of faith that God was working through this man, through his faith. And I find it kind of nifty that God chooses to partner with people. I mean, for him, it's probably a lot like when, when you know, 
you and your toddler make the bed and they're helping, you know, make the bed. We have to remember, though, that God is patient and he loves, he loves to reveal his character to us through the interaction of working through our faith. Anyway, um, we're going to keep going. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus. That was the, he, he was, Zeus was like the head honcho god, you know, for the, the Greek mythology. Um, and, and then Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. You remember the, I want to say it was the Goodyear, the little feet with the wings on it? You know, that's, that was, that's supposed to represent Hermes. He was the messenger of the gods. Uh, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands, which were two signs of worship, oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now you hear that and first of all, um, you know, I, I know I've been, we, we might be tempted to, to, to chuckle or to think less of these Greeks for thinking that Paul and Barnabas were gods, but I don't think we should and here's why. They were devout followers of, of their own mythical religion, right? So, so why wouldn't they be affected by a miracle the same way that, that many of the Jews were? when they saw Jesus performing signs and wonders. See, people are able to respond to evidence that they see. Now, this is true for Jews or Gentiles, for, for believers and non-believers, for those who come to the right conclusions and those who come to wrong conclusions. But either way, they're still responding to what they see in accordance with what they already know. So, let me give you a for instance. A lot of Jews understood that Jesus might be the Messiah even before they heard him say so. Right? Because they were waiting for the Messiah. They saw the, the miracles that he did and they believed. Not all of them, but many of them did. The Greeks didn't realize yet that there was only one God. Okay? Rather than they had, they had this, this pantheon of gods. But, but they still knew a miracle when they saw a miracle. And so how did they respond? They tried to offer sacrifices. Why? Because human beings are wired to worship. We are created to worship. God created us with the innate desire to honor something that is greater than we are. You know, people in, in ancient cultures at the time that God revealed himself to Abram and called him out of Ur, those folks worshipped the moon and the sun, too. And of course, all the Canaanites worshipped idols. I mean, e even atheists will find something to worship. They'll worship success or money or their kids uh, I told you about that guy named Byron that I met a long time ago that, that, that worshipped fun. You remember I told him I serve Christ, and he said, I serve fun. Sad. Some people worship a set of ideals. Some people worship a sports team. You know, I went to see uh, the Batman movie with a bunch of Judah's friends the other day. And they were all so, ex oh, okay, we were all so excited <laughs> to go see this movie. In fact, one of the guys shouted out, I love you, Robert Pattinson, right before it started. And we were all embarrassed. Um, but when it started and when it ended, people in this theater actually cheered and clapped for a movie. <laughs> Folks, we are hardwired to demonstrate our appreciation for things that impress us, things that inspire us. And, and if, only, if only we recognize the awesomeness of God so easily. People that say that they're not demonstrative in worship, go to a football game with them. 
Anyway, these, these pagans, these, these devout Greeks are preparing to worship Paul and Barnabas, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. Do you know why they're tearing their garments? Because they're Hulkamaniacs, brother. No? No? That was not in my notes. Uh, <laughs> it was a cultural thing. It was a way of showing great dismay or even mourning. They, they wanted to make a very strong statement. Don't give us honor that belongs to God. And that's, that's what they should have done, too. You know, listen, friends, Christians deflect glory that God should receive. Okay? We don't soak that up. We deflect it. We should say, praise God. We should give glory to God. When you, when you are a new creation in Christ, it comes with the understanding of your sin and of God's perfection, of your inability and of God's capability. And you recognize that anything good or anything praiseworthy that is in you is due to God's grace. Any gifting that you may have, any, any talents, no matter how hard you work to hone them, okay, they came from the Lord. And even if you have the ability to perform signs and wonders, that, that is the power of God, and it only occurs at His discretion. So never accept glory that belongs to God. Never, ever, ever. You may remember that King Herod accepted glory that belonged to God just a couple chapters back. It did not end well for him. Um, so, by the way, what, what is this good news that Paul is alluding to? The gospel, thanks, Chris. It, 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 it's, it's the gospel. It's, they've been preaching about Jesus, about God's Messiah, and, and about his death and his resurrection, and how God provided the forgiveness of sins through him. And that's important, because the context can help us to understand what Paul's going to say next. And he's about to tell them what the proper response to this good news ought to be. And in doing so, he gives a lot of information about the character of God. Uh, so we're, we're going to read that. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, you know, oxen and garlands and false gods, to the living God. Turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So church, what is the Holy Spirit saying through Paul here? I mean, maybe most obviously, because he flat out says it, God is a living God. You know, he's not like their idols all right, but look at the description here. What did the Lord do? He created everything. Everything. Heaven, earth, oceans, and everything in them. That's pretty much covering all the bases, right? With this kind of ability, it is implicit that God is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. You can't create universal order out of universal chaos unless you have universal dominion. The next sentence makes the same case, but it does it in a different way. Paul says, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Now, this, this statement implies a couple of things, okay? 
First, it says that the Lord has the moral authority to determine what is the right way, as opposed to the nations walking in other ways, in their own ways, okay? But the fact that he allowed them to go against his way, that shows that he has the prerogative to choose how he's going to respond to their disobedience. You know, rather than forcing them to obey or simply annihilating them, God patiently kept them around for the time being so that he could give them a chance to hear the gospel and be saved. And this fact that's coupled with the next sentence reveals that God is also merciful and good because he chose to extend grace rather than punishment for the sins that they committed without fully understanding what they were doing. On top of that, he also provides what we call common grace which are the, the, the normal blessings that all people have a chance to enjoy. You know, Jesus refers to the righteous and the unrighteous, receiving both the sun and the rain. Um, you know, the example Paul uses here is how God gives people good weather and good harvests, you know, g- giving them everything they need to live and to feel satisfied in their daily pursuits. Right in the middle of this description, though, Paul says something that is really, really profound, and it, it's the basis for the title of this message. He points out, that God has not left himself without witness. And what does that mean? God has not left himself without witness. That's a very deep statement. You remember, this is after the people tried to offer sacrifices, right, to him and Barnabas because they'd done this miraculous sign by healing a crippled man. Was that a witness to God's power, to God's presence? Absolutely, right. Oh yeah, remember, we, we said God is evidenced by miracles, but that's, that's not all that Paul is talking about here. He's pointing out something much more profound because it relates to every human being that has ever lived long enough to, to see it, hear it, touch it, smell it, taste it. And that is the fact that God is evidenced by nature. God is evidenced by nature. Remember the psalm we read this morning, we opened with it. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night knowledge. Speech about whom? Knowledge of whom? The Lord. Are you all with me? You tracking? (laughs) Have you seen any glorious sunrises or sunsets this week? There haven't been as many this week because there's not that many clouds, but, but we've still seen some, haven't we? Folks, uh, you know, Chris and I were talking about this on the way back from um, an excursion last week. Uh, simply being outdoors can open our, our eyes to the Lord because of the scale, because of the intricacy of nature, of creation. I feel like the more scientifically complex our knowledge gets, the more it reveals about the presence of God and about the qualities of his character. You know, since, since the modern scientific age began, we have continually been able to see further and further out into the universe and, and, and distances that just stagger the imagination. And we haven't come to a wall yet. You notice that? It keeps going. It keeps getting bigger and bigger. We've also been able to to see smaller and smaller particles that make up everything in creation. And every time we get down to something that we think are the basic building blocks, we find out pretty soon there's something that those are made of. 
bigger and bigger, smaller and smaller. The tiny, razor-thin margin of Earth's orbit that allows this planet to sustain life. The impossibly delicate balance of our universe. You know, the, the rods and cones, the, the photoreceptors in the human eye. It all points to an all-powerful creator. And I'm, I'm not just, you know, presuming that either. The Bible says so. <laughs> in Romans 1, Paul writes... For what can be known about God is plain to them, referring to mankind, because God has shown it to him. For his his invisible attributes, shown it to them, excuse me, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. That means anybody can see since the beginning of the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Who's the they? Everybody. Mm-hmm. Us. We are they. In other words, friends, it, it's incredibly obvious that there is a real God that exists and that he made everything that we see when we're out there in nature, right? Atheism doesn't make sense. I think it makes less sense now than it did 200 years ago because we have an ever better understanding of the magnitude of the complexity of our universe. It didn't just happen. Now, some people think that, you know, just because we've figured out how something works, we don't need to assume a creator. Well, that's irrational. It's been compared to saying we understand how a cow, uh, uh, not a cow, (laughs) we understand how a car works, and therefore nothing built it. Right? That doesn't make any sense. God is evidenced by nature, by his creation, and he is all-powerful. And the fact that, that he created a world so full of good things that bring joy and gladness to us, that shows his goodness. His patience with mankind shows his mercy. But then there's this caveat that Paul made, and I, I kind of I glossed over it on purpose so that we could come back to it after being reminded about these characteristics of God. Paul says that he was preaching the good news in order that they should turn from these vain things to a living God. What's he talking about? What vain things? You said sin, idolatry, their own false gods, their own contrived religious system, their faulty way of thinking and living. What Paul is talking about is mankind's desperate need for repentance. What is repentance? We've talked about this a bunch of times. Metanoia in Greek, a change of mind. But it's a complete change of mind. It's a turning from sin and turning toward God. That's what repentance is. It's a type of surrender to faith that kicks off that transformation in a person. I read a brief piece of Romans 1 earlier. I want to read the context around it. Now, to show how desperate, okay, how desperate this need of repentance actually is. Right before the verses, explaining that God's character is evident in creation, so much so that people have no excuse to reject him, Paul wrote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What is wrath? Judgment. Come on, you guys in my class this morning, what is wrath? 
Righteous anger, thank you. What is wrath? No, sorry. Wrath is righteous anger. It is the appropriate response to rebellion against a perfect, loving, and holy God. God is infuriated when people suppress truth with their unrighteousness. I want you to think for a moment about about God's truth being suppressed by unrighteousness today. You know, Jesus himself said, have you not heard that in the beginning, he, that's God, created them male and female? How many genders is that? Oh, how about that? Far more basic than that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what are our kids being taught in school? That lightning struck rock soup and somehow created life. It's insane. The glory that belongs to God is being attributed to nameless processes that defy logic and don't even exist. The genius and the beauty of complementary genders is being denied. And here's where that goes, friends. The Bible is very clear. Paul describes what occurred with the nation of Israel probably multiple times throughout history. And it also describes many nations that are founded on godly principles, including, I believe, ours. Okay? So God's wrath is being revealed against those who suppress his truth with their unrighteousness because he's, he's so evident in all creation. And yet people refuse to give God what belongs to him. I want to start again here in Romans 1.21, right after saying mankind is, is without excuse. For although they knew God, because remember, they're without excuse. They'd seen him at work in powerful, even miraculous ways. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile, worthless, ineffective in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, did you know the word sapiens in homo sapiens means wise? Claiming to become Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Sound familiar? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. It gets worse. For this reason, for for, for their pride and their refusal to repent, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. You know, if if there's ever been a solid New Testament argument that the practice and even the desires of homosexuality are contrary to God's design, contrary to nature, look no further. Here it is. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Do you see this downward spiral of depravity? Do you see it? They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. 
They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Don't miss that, kids. Don't miss that. There's a reason it's on this list. God ordained your parents as the authority in your lives. And if you ignore or rebel against them, you are ignoring or rebelling against the Lord. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You see that? You see the lowest point in this downward spiral, the place at which an individual or a society is circling the drain is when they are not only practicing wickedness, but they are proud of it and encouraging others to do the same. Where we are right now as a society. And where way too many people, even within the professing church, are headed. Do you agree that people are in desperate need of repentance? I am. Every day. You are too. Every day. To become more like Christ, we need to continue to undergo a process of sanctification, which means our minds being turned more and more to Christ. Paul says, be renewed by the transforming of your mind. Something God does, but we participate. Don't misunderstand, folks. This this is not just about society. Hope I made that clear by raising my hand. Or culture. Or even within the church. Empires always crumble eventually. Nothing in this world is forever. That includes the U.S. of A., okay? And it's important for us to know the signs of the times and be prepared for when the Lord disciplines a nation, for sure, right? But there's an individual application here, too. You know, each of us, we still commit sin sometimes because it, it lives within our bodies. But are we fighting it? You know, the author of Hebrews talks about sin in Hebrews chapter 12. And he says, some of you haven't gotten to the place of of shedding blood yet in the fight against sin. He's saying, look, you guys aren't suffering. You're not trying hard enough. Are we fighting against these wicked desires because we recognize they're our enemies? Or are we coddling our sin? Because you can't hate it and coddle it at the same time. Not for long anyway. Frankly, I also believe that every Christian should hate his own sin more than he hates the sin of others. But we should still hate sin. We should reject godlessness and strive for godliness in every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our faith. Because the same Lord who died on the cross to pay for your sins, to pay for mine, and the sins of the whole world, he rose from the dead and he ascended to the Father. Yes, but he's coming back. He's coming back. And this time it's going to be very, very different. Those who belong to him through repentant faith, we're going to meet him in the air in our new bodies. But those who've steadfastly rejected him, who've who've chosen their own way, who've refused to repent, they will be judged. Don't be on the wrong side of that return, folks. Let's finish up. 
Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Because these, these Greeks were really zealous. They thought they were gods. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Uh, what? <laughs> we're we're going to start our text next week with verse 19 also, but I, I thought it was fitting to put this here, okay? From trying to worship them in one sentence to the next sentence, being persuaded to drag them out of the city and kill them, okay? I thought it was, it was fitting to remind us that people are horribly fickle. We're terrible about this, folks. The human heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. We're so fickle. I, I, I told you the, the opening story was eventually going to make sense, right? Uh, but, but people, we are so quick to go from friends to enemies or enemies to friends. Aren't you thankful that God is not fickle? Aren't you glad that he's not capricious or arbitrary, that he doesn't one day just go, yeah, I don't like you guys, God doesn't make snap decisions. God is constant, but people aren't. And I want to end on that. According to Ephesians 2, if you are a justified believer in Christ, then you are chosen in Him before the foundation of the world by the same God that created this entire universe who is all-powerful and good and merciful, but He's also wrathful against those who reject His kindness. And if you are not a professing Christian today, I want to encourage you to respond to God's grace and mercy by believing in Jesus Christ. Believe what he did for you. Receive forgiveness for your sins and, and, and the Holy Spirit to indwell you and guide you in life. Do what he says. Confess Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God. Be baptized by immersion in the water as the Word teaches. Don't reject him anymore. Come up during the invitation song and, and, and let's get you baptized. Let's do it. 